0: This is our last Sunday in the book of Revelation, maybe not forever and ever, but at least for this sermon series. So if you're visiting today, you're probably like, darn, I should have come a few Sundays ago. Well, we've actually been in here for like eight months, so you know I'll leave it to you to figure how that works. But the very last uh, passage of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 6 to 21, and really these verses are meant to summarize everything that we have heard so far. And as I was reading and studying this week I came across uh, I think a wonderful a wonderful analogy of what we're going to do what it's been like to read through the book of Revelation together. It was N.T. Wright in his, com- his For Everyone Commentary on Revelation who said that if you've ever been, uh, he grew up, of course, in England where they have lots of church bells, and he said he once overheard a, a big choir of bells, you know, 10 or 12 bells up in the steeple of the church ringing. And they're ringing, you know, not haphazardly, but in order. There is some sort of music to what they're doing. And he said at first you could, you could hear each bell But eventually, just the sheer volume and the sheer quantity of sound that you were hearing meant that all you could hear was just the low. You could hear the the crashing of, of the higher bells, but you could only pick out the tones of the lowest bells at all. He said that's a little bit what it's like to read the book of Revelation. The visions that John has had, they seem to come faster and faster and faster and be more detailed and wilder until all you can really hear are the big themes of the book drawn out over and over again. The details start to get hard to pick out. And what are these big themes? What is it that we've learned at the end of the book of Revelation?" Well, you've heard me say week after week after week that the point of the book of Revelation, the, the, the thing that everything is serving here, the idea everything is serving, is that no matter what life brings at you, your job is to maintain your faithful testimony to Jesus Christ in word and in deed. In the things that you choose to do and in the way that you shape your life, just as much as in the words that you speak to the people around you? What good is it to tell people Jesus has died and risen from the dead if our lives are not transformed by that truth? Is it really good news if all it is is just news, just words? And I think we see this clearly in the very opening chapters of the book, chapters 2 and 3, where John writes, uh, actually Jesus Christ writes through the apostle John, Letters to the seven churches of Southwest Asia Minor, modern-day Southwest Turkey. Ephesus must go, in their letter, Jesus says, you've forgotten your first love. Remember the love that you had at first. They must go from a cold righteousness, a cold having the right answers, a cold telling everyone where they've messed up, into living their lives in the context of love. And, of course, this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus had all the answers, but he didn't shout them down from heaven like, hey, you guys are really messing it up down there. He actually came and shared our lives and shared our existence and shared our laughter and our tears and showed us how to live. Smyrna is told, point blank, your job is to be faithful unto death, and some of you, as a matter of fact, are going to die. But don't compromise the way of life in Jesus Christ and your testimony to him. Pergamon must stop trying to have it both ways at once. So you are trying to be like everybody else and be like Jesus, and you can only do one of those things. You can be like everyone else or be like Jesus. Make up your mind. Thyatira is told to hold fast. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep showing the world who Jesus is. Sardists must complete their works by waking up. You know, I, I, when I was reading this, I thought a little bit of, of children, right? Children, when, when they're babies, they don't really know or understand anything that they're doing. And sometimes they do things that are good and beautiful and true, and sometimes they do things that are less good and beautiful and true. And they don't really know the difference until they get a bit older. And that means that when we have young children, we don't expect them to have everything figured out right away, do we? Instead, we help them to grow up into the person that God has made them to be. We help them to grow up into being kind and generous and good. Children are not born always being kind and generous and good. We know that because there are no adults who are currently all kind and generous and good. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to Sardis. You got started, but you never really got going. So keep on. Philadelphia is told, you basically have nothing. (laughs) You are poor, you are powerless. At least that's the way the rest of the world sees you. All you need to do is maintain what you have. That's enough. You don't have to you know, go from being a small backwater town to being New York City. You just need to be faithful. Hold fast. And then Laodicea is told, you need to stop thinking you can do it all yourself. You need to recognize that you think you are clothed in beautiful clothes. You think you have everything that you need, but you are poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. You need to come to me to have everything that you need. And we can summarize again. All of these seven churches are basically being told, are you going to live in Jesus in the way of the Lamb? Or are you going to live in the way of the dragon, the way of the world apart from God that is trying to rule itself and is constantly falling apart and rebuilding and being destroyed and being built back up in this never-ending cycle? And that's what the rest of the book is illustrating. What does it look like to follow Jesus in this world? What does it look like to not follow Jesus in this world? And these folks who are struggling along, you know, they're saying, I don't know if it really is worth it to follow Jesus, for example, because, you know, in, in the case of these these folks in Pergamum, they're actually being cast out of the local uh, trade guilds, which means that they can't make an economic living for themselves because they won't worship the gods that the trade guilds worship. They're losing everything. They're saying, is it really worth it to follow Jesus when we don't see a way forward in this world? And Jesus says to them, out of what we've seen in the book of Revelation, yes, it is, because this world is passing away. Anything you can grab onto today is gone tomorrow, or the next day, or at some point in the future. None of it lasts. The only thing that lasts is the kingdom that Jesus is building. We see that the churches are saying it feels like we're suffering along with the rest of the world. You know, if if we're really God's children, shouldn't life get better for us? And that's what the seal judgments are about in chapter 6. It's God saying as long as you live in a world that's infected by sin, there are certain things that are going to be true. There are going to be people always wanting to build empire, uh, and the people under them are going to suffer because of it. There's going to be a lack of peace on the earth. There's going to be economic hardship on the earth. As long as Jesus is not on the throne in this world, these things will be true. Now, the human effort for the last 10,000 years of civilization has always been to try and find uh, the new trick that'll take care of all of this stuff, right? Uh, I don't know, maybe you watch Dr. Oz or maybe you don't, but Dr. Oz has got a new miracle pill every week, right? It's like, oh, if you just take like this fish oil, like you will be so healthy, you can't even believe it. And you know, oh, if you just take this vitamin or this supplement, you know, you, it's, it's going to turn your life around. You're going to feel so much more energy. Now, I'm not saying none of these things have any value. I've just noticed that all of us still die, even the people who watch Doctor Oz. There's no magic pill. There's no magic pill out there that takes away all of our trouble and all of our problems. It means that we don't have to eat a, a healthy diet. And that we don't have to go out and exercise. And the same thing is true of all of our human efforts to make this world a better place. They might take us a little bit farther forward. I mean, they really do. the The actions that we take, the the kind of people we are in this world, it really does make a difference. And yet, none of it's the final answer. Uh, I remember when I lived in Seattle. Uh, of course, homelessness is a big issue back then. It's an even bigger issue now. And I remember having a conversation uh, with a homeless person once. We were working in a homeless ministry uh, with our Bible study, and we started talking to uh, one of these guys who's out on the street. And uh, we said, you yeah, know, tell, tell me about your life. Tell me what it's going on. He told us all this different stuff. And we said, well, you know, do you want to get off the street? What's, you know, we were just trying to have this honest conversation with him. And he said, No, I don't, because I've done some things, and I'm ashamed, and I don't want the people who love me to find me. Now, this is not what every homeless story is. I just tell this story to illustrate there's no simple solution. Dr. Oz doesn't have a magic pill. There's no structure that we could put in place that will heal that man's heart. That's Jesus' job. And unless Jesus does his job, nothing will change the fundamental nature of the world that we live in. That's why we talk about Jesus being our Savior. We don't mean the guy who, you know, just gives us a little help when we need it. We mean the guy that unless he saves us, we will die. Again, I think that should be fairly self-evident because everyone except Jesus in the history of the world has died and stayed dead. You and I, unless Jesus comes back first, we know, even if we try and avoid it, we will die. This is the problem. This is the overarching problem in the world. Death is a part of the created order. The book of Revelation tries to wake us up to this. The problem isn't that you're hungry today. The problem is that hunger exists. And so now, finally, come to these last chapters. And the angel says to John in verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true. Everything you've heard so far, you can count on it. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. You are now equipped. You understand something about the world that you didn't understand before. And knowledge is a wonderful thing. The truth shall set you free, right? But knowledge is also a responsibility. Knowledge, in a sense, is even a burden. Because once you know, you have a responsibility to act. The angel said, now you know. Now how are you going to live? And then Jesus jumps in the risen Jesus in heaven, and he says, look, I am coming soon, and he's going to say this three times, and I think this is the three controlling ideas here in our summation of Revelation. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. You have the knowledge, now act. And what's the implication? If you are blessed, if you keep the words of the prophecy, if you do them, If you don't do them, will you be blessed? And blessed here, by the way, is not just like, I'm going to feel nice. It's Blessed is a sense of, will there be any happiness for you at all? It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. And I think this is the first thing we take out of the summation of Revelation. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And in response to his soon-to-comeness and in response to all that he has revealed, the first thing that happens is the person who understands falls down in worship. But it also matters what we give our worship to. John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing these things to him. But the angel said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Have you noticed something about the world that we live in in that we give worship maybe a little bit cavalierly? We see it in the church. We see churches where the pastor is the one who gets the worship. I pray to God that's not true here. Because number one, I'm not worthy. Number two, I don't want that responsibility when I stand before God someday. And number three, it will not help you. It will not help you. The only worship that changes your life in a positive way is to worship God himself. And yet we see churches who, instead of worshiping God, give their worship to some Christian leader, to somebody who made a great difference in their life. What they should have said to that person was, thank you, God has used you greatly, and now I worship him. We see it outside the church as well, don't we? We see it unfolding again to our great frustration in the 2024 presidential election cycle. We're choosing our Savior again, right? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what the president slash Savior is going to make everything better? Of course not. We know. We've tried this over and over and over again. How many presidents are we up to now? Like 46? I don't remember what number Biden is. But none of them have actually saved us. Even Abraham Lincoln. He was an amazing, amazing president, not the savior. Lincoln himself pointed behind and said, the good stuff comes from God. My job is to not mess it up for you all. That's my revision of what Lincoln said there. <clears throat> It matters who we give our worship to. Because when we give our worship to the wrong people and to the wrong things, the problems don't get solved. The problems don't get solved. We end up right back where we started. Not just because we have term limits, but because no one can live up to those expectations except for Jesus Christ. Then the angel told John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. It matters who we give our worship to, but then there's a corollary. Your life will reveal who you worship. Inextricably. These things are bound up together. The way that you live. That's why Jesus isn't saying like, hey, if you're doing wrong, Please keep doing that. He's not giving a command. He's describing. This is the way it is. Whoever you worship, your life will reflect that. And if you worship the good and beautiful and holy and true things, your life will reflect that. You will do good. You will be holy. If you worship the lesser things and even the evil things in the world, you yourself will be evil and you yourself will be lesser. You don't have to be a Christian to know that this is true. You know, uh, I grew up, my generation was the generation that grew up playing video games. Right, the generation before mine, really, that wasn't so much a thing. Like, I was born, I think the Atari came out very, very early, before I really knew what was going on, all right? It was just before me. But, you know, the original Nintendo and all these things, they all came out in my lifetime. And it's funny, because my generation, I think, is also one of the first generations where all the adults, at least all the male adults, because we're not as good as the female adults, still play video games in one way or another. I like to say my children, you know, we have a Nintendo Switch at home, and my kids every once in a while. Actually, not every once in a while. like constantly come up to me and say, Daddy, will you play Zelda for us? And I'm like, I have to go be a good parent and play Zelda. But uh, one of, gosh, I've lost my train of thought. I have no idea why I'm talking about this anymore. <laughs> But, uh, oh, I remember, you know, there are all kinds of different games you can play out there. And you know that, you've heard it in the media, there are all these questions about, if you play violent video games, will you become violent yourself? And I wonder if the question ought to actually be rephrased. If you play violent video games, are you already a lover of violence? And your choice is simply revealing what's in your heart. If you watch, you know, the media you watch, doesn't it reveal something about who you are and what you value the candidate that you vote for, doesn't it actually reveal, you know, on the one hand, I value, you know, I say I value a person of high moral character, you know, in addition to these political ideals, and yet I'm willing to overlook the moral character as long as I get the political ideals. So which one do you really value? We know that this is true. Your lives reflect what you value highest. Highest. And when push comes to shove, what you grab out of the burning house is what was really important to you. Whether it's your Nintendo, or your wife, or anyone else. (laughs) I would grab my wife, just so you know. (laughs) My children, too. I don't know if I'll have time for the cats, I'm just saying. (laughs) Your life will reveal who you worship, so give right worship. And if you're given the wrong worship, if you recognize today, you know, the things I'd grab out of my house, the media that I watch, the video games that I play, the person who I vote for are revealing something about my heart that I didn't understand was true, the good news is there's always time to turn to Jesus. It's always time to turn around. You know what turning to Jesus looks like? It doesn't look like, Jesus, I am able to guarantee from here on out, I will never sin again. I will always be good. I'll always love the things that you love. That's not something we're capable of doing. Instead, turning to Jesus looks like, Jesus, I recognize my affections are all messed up, and I can't put them back in place on my own. I need you to remake my heart. That's where it starts. It's not where it finishes, but it's where it starts. Secondly, first, if Jesus is coming soon, and that reminds us to make sure we are worshiping him, secondly, Jesus is coming soon, and he has the authority to give to men and women what they deserve. In verses 12 to 13, he says, Look, I am coming soon. We're going to hear that a lot. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then if we go back, to uh, down a little further to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. See, we begin with who Jesus is. He's the Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and the end. He is also the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. That first set of titles, Alpha and Omega, First and the Last, these are titles that belong to God and God alone. Aristotle, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, once asked a question. I find it fascinating the way he talks about it. He says, who is the first mover? He doesn't mean who is the first guy with a moving truck who you know, move people from one place to another. But he said, what is the first action? Who is the person responsible for setting everything in motion? in the first place? Who is the first mover? And Aristotle asked this because, you know, again, we go back to children. If you've had children, what's their favorite question, right? Why? Right? Why? Why is the sky blue? Well, you know, because the gases and the atmosphere and and, uh, sun coming through them just looks blue. Well, but Why? Right, and, and they keep on going, and they keep on going. You go, know, why, 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 why? And there is a wisdom in their questioning, even as there is also an obnoxiousness sometimes in that same questioning too. But the wisdom in their questioning is, well, but what really got it all going in the first place? And Aristotle, and looking around the world, and other philosophers today, and looking around the world, they say every single thing that we see is the result of something else. What is the one thing that is not a result? What is the person? What is the thing? What is the substance that started the whole train in the first place? And that's something of what alpha and omega, first and last, beginning and end, means. I am the one with no beginning. No one started me, but I started everything. I am the one who has no end, even though everything else perishes. Uh, One of the Newton's laws, I I can't ever remember which one because, you know, my BA is in BS, biblical studies, by the way, but, uh, you know, one of the laws of physics actually posits that, you know, there's this great equalization of energy that's constantly going on in our universe, and eventually we'll, we'll reach equilibrium where there'll be no more energy to move anything. It'll all be done. And this means that physics itself says everything has an end. Everything has an end. But not God. The beginning and the end come at His discretion, and they come from Him. This is the one who's coming. This is the one who's coming. Jesus is also the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He is the king that God has promised. That's what the root and offspring of David means. He has the right and the wisdom and the ability to render perfect judgment that no one else has. No one else can have because all of us are limited in every way, in our knowledge, in our understanding, in our goodness. We're all limited, but he is not. He's the bright morning star. I don't know exactly. There's probably a lot here that I don't know about this title. But you know, the morning star is the planet Venus. And it is often the last thing you see at night and the first thing you see in the morning. And I think we're meant to have that vision in our mind. He is the one who presages the dawn for our entire world. He has... In himself, the ability to render a perfect judgment. And that's exactly what he will do. And who wants to disagree with what he says here? Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The people who want to be good, I'm going to give them life. Anyone have a problem with that? Sounds pretty fair to me. Then he says this, Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. See, Jesus groups all of these things under falsehood. He's saying they're not real things. You're not pursuing the good and the beautiful and the true. You may be pursuing uh, pleasure. You may be hedonists. You may be all these different things, but you don't want what is good. So do we think it's unfair that Jesus says, if you don't want what's good, I'm not going to give it to you? Um, When I was uh, having Thanksgiving dinner the other night, Last night, as a matter of fact, because we always do it on Saturday, uh, because, you know, we're rebels. Actually, it's just because that's when all the family can get together. But I was faced with a lot of choices. How much turkey am I going to have? Will I go back for seconds or thirds? When I am so full that I know having dessert will actually make me feel bad, will I do it anyway? You know what I noticed? I was allowed to make all of those choices. And when I woke up feeling really crappy this morning, that seemed pretty just to me. And I think that's essentially what Jesus is saying. We don't always realize the full consequences of our choices. And yet they are still our choices. And God's not wrong for giving us the logical outcome of our choices. But he has such a wide and a great mercy. Remember what we said? He said it's never too late to turn to Jesus. And turning to Jesus and changing the consequences of your choices, all it takes is Jesus. My affections are all disordered and messed up. Would you put them back and make me right? First, Jesus is coming soon, and so give right worship. Secondly, Jesus is coming soon. He has the right authority and ability to give to human beings what they deserve. And finally, Jesus is coming soon. And if you're intimidated by point two, you're going to love point three. All you need to do is take advantage of the life that he offers. I love, I love this passage. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Right? There's no qualifications. They'd say, When you have done, if you are like, they just say, Come. You know who the Spirit and the bride are here. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit who empowers the church. Because in, verse, in chapter 21, we saw the bride of Christ, which is the holy city who is the church. The Spirit and the church say, come. So as a church, the first thing we ought to be asking is, are we saying come to the world or not? We say, or are we saying come with qualifications? Come if, come when, instead of come now. Come as soon as you can. Come whatever you are like this whole end of Revelation is taken from Isaiah 55.1. And this is one of the verses that we've chosen uh, to illustrate what our mission statement is here. I'm going to go back. I don't quite have this fully memorized. But Isaiah 55.1, it says this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come. Come. If you're not part of the church, come and you will find your family and you will find your God's people and you will find your people who tell you about Jesus, who lead you to Jesus, who point you to Jesus and, oh, by the way, sometimes also need to be told and led back to Jesus themselves because there is no church yet that is fully prepared to be the bride of Christ. We are waiting for Jesus to make us that way and we are urging each other on And sometimes it works beautifully and wonderfully. We say this is the most amazing thing ever. And some of you have experienced the opposite of this at the same time, and yet you are here, that the church sometimes gets it very, very wrong. And yet it's through the church that we hear, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Here John is saying, there are some of you who are in the church, and yet you're not really of it. Some of you are here and you're just hangers on. You haven't given your lives to Jesus and you're not going to be able to hear. But those people who have been shaken out of their stupor, who have come to understand what the world is like through the visions, these people now say, come. Say, come to the person sitting next to you and say, come to the person who lives across the street from you. Come to Jesus. Let the one who is thirsty come. Come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. All you have to do is come. And then I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Now we're really in the epilogue. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. Why does he say this? And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. What John is saying is you've got the message, right? You are not the authors of it. Jesus Christ is the author of the message. He has communicated faithfully through his servant, John, who has communicated faithfully to you, and now your job is just to tell it like it is. And folks, this is a lot harder sometimes than we realize. We can make two mistakes. uh, Two mistake isn't really a strong enough word in how we share the words that we've learned from John, and in really all of Scripture, because it's not an accident that this statement comes at the very end of Scripture itself. The first mistake is we can do it like the people in Ephesus, and say, you know what? I hate you all. I hate you all, so I'm going to tell you the truth. And you've experienced that in your life, haven't you? You might have even done it in your life. I know I have. Where you didn't tell people the truth about who God is because you hoped that they would come to salvation, but instead you were just like Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah. Jonah, God calls him and says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell him all about my grace and mercy. And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And so he gets a ticket on a ship that's going exactly away from Nineveh, as fast as he can possibly go. And then he gets out in the middle of of the Mediterranean Sea, and a big storm kicks up, and uh, and. Jonah recognizes this is God hunting me down because I wouldn't go where he told me to go. And so the the sailors on the ship say, well, what should we do? If if God's really after you, how do we solve this problem? You know what Jonah could have said? Turn around the ship and take me to Nineveh. But Jonah said, throw me overboard because I am not going to Nineveh. But at least you'll live. And then, and we always think like, oh, God rescued Jonah by having the great fish swallow him up. It's not a whale, by the way. It just says fish. In scripture, God rescued Jonah by having the great... No, that's not what God did. God said, are you still disobedient? How about staying in the belly of a fish for a while? And so Jonah, miserable, stinky, smelly, afraid of death, and yet afraid of going to where God wants to send him, finally says, okay, God, okay, This is worse than going to Nineveh. I will go to Nineveh. And the fish spits him out, and you know where he is? He's right next to Nineveh. And that's not the end of the story. Jonah then prophesies, and Nineveh repents. And Jonah goes, and he he goes and finds himself a nice seat on a hill because he's hoping that God is going to destroy Nineveh. He hopes this, by the way, because Nineveh had destroyed his people and his homeland. And Jonah sits on the hill, and he looks out, and God says, are you really angry that I would show mercy today? Jonah says to him, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew you'd forgive these jerks. This is totally my paraphrase. doesn't say that in the NIV. <laughs> knew you would have mercy on these jerks. God says, you're really angry that I would have mercy. That's the first way we can add and subtract from the message. We could take out the part where God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, like Bill Bright would have said, and instead say, God so hated the world that he sent his only son to make you feel terrible about your sin. Go to hell. The other mistake we can make, it's actually hatred of a different sort, even though it feels like love. Say, I'm too afraid to tell you the truth. I'm too afraid that you will reject it. I'm too afraid that you'll be hurt by it or ashamed by it. I'm too afraid that you will reject me because of it. And so I will love myself and my comfort, and maybe even your comfort, more than I will love the truth. And we could leave things out. We could change it to be a little easier to hear in the 21st century. but if we're willing to tell the message the way Jesus gave it. Not with the exact words, because you know, those are different. For one thing, the book of Revelation is written in Greek, and none of us speak Greek. But if we're willing to give the true message that Jesus gave, then when Jesus says here in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon, we will say in return, Amen. That word, amen, Jesus actually loves to use it. You read the Gospels. You ever uh, remember Jesus says, truly I say to you. He says, amen, I say to you. Amen in Greek. Amen, come, Lord Jesus.